Hello, I'm Bill Peschel, and this is Mechanicsburg Mystery Presents, A Conversation with Edwin Hill. Edwin is the author of three books in the Hester Thursby series, which have received numerous award nominations and critical praise. Born in Duxbury, Massachusetts, Edwin earned a BA in American Studies from Wesleyan University and a Master of Fine Arts from Emerson College in Boston. He has worked in publishing for more than 20 years, rising to become vice president and editorial director of Bedford St. Martin's before turning to writing full time. He lives in Roslindale, Massachusetts with his partner, Michael, and a Golden Lab, Edith Ann. Edwin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. I wanted to say uh, I've been going through uh, The Secrets We Share, which is the fourth book in your your writing of your, this is the first one you wrote three books involving uh, Hester uh, Thursby, yep. a re research associate. Uh, and then this one is a standalone in which she also appears. Why did you do that? Uh, why did I write the standalone? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Uh, you know, there are a lot of reasons. One of them, I would say that um, Writing a series is really fun because you come up with these characters and then you get to see them over a long period of time and you get to you get to develop them over a long period of time. And writing a series is also frustrating because you have to stay with those characters over a long period of time. And decisions that you made about those characters, you know, they have repercussions. They sort of last for the whole series. So I thought it would be a nice breath of fresh air to try and uh, try something new and start out with some new, some brand new characters as the central parts of the novel. Um, and as I was developing it, I one of the one of the recurring characters in the Hester Thursby series wound up making a not just a brief appearance. She wound up being a main character. Um, and so then, since she was there, her name is Angela White. Since Angela was there, I thought, well, I guess Hester needs to be there because they're like best friends. So uh, Hester needs to be there too. And so I had Hester make a, a make a um, cameo appearance. I like the way you integrated her into the series, and now you've all of a sudden created a Hesterverse. Yeah, yeah. And I like it when people do that. A lot of authors, a lot of authors do that. I really like Tana French's books, the way, you know, like a minor character will will be a major character in the next uh, book in the series, uh, which I think is such a fun, creative way of approaching sort of creating a world and like showing how we're all interconnected. I think it also helps the fans as well because it grounds them into the world and it also gives them a chance to see the characters that they've loved from previous books showing up in a slightly different context here as well. Yeah, and it's good to know, like if you like Hester, it's good to know she's still around, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So let's talk about Hester then because uh, she's the main character. I, I want to go over this, the, the four books that you've written so that our readers... Um, understand where you're coming from because you wrote three books in the series little comfort which is a publisher's weekly starred review and was nominated for an agatha award the second one is called the missing ones which also received a publisher's weekly starred review and uh, also one from booklist as well and that one was edgar and agatha nominated as well is that correct yep and the third one watch her um which I also have here as well, I've been reading that as well, was praised highly by Publishers Weekly. And I consider all these to be really valid nominations, valid praise. You can get a lot of good reviews out there, but when Publishers Weekly gives you a starred review, that 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 is uh, praise at the highest order as far as I'm oh, concerned. Oh, I was thrilled by it. I'll tell you that much for free. <laughs> <laughs> and then the fourth one, uh, The Secrets We Share, uh, is uh, was... Let's see. Library Journal gave that one a starred review. Did I cover all the uh, all the praise yeah. for it? Oh yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. 
Now, uh, Hester uh, is, is an unusual character. She's an amateur detective, but these are not cozy series. These are psychological thrillers, and she works as a research librarian at Harvard. Am I correct? Yep. yep. Okay. Okay. And she has some very unusual uh, personality quirks as well. Uh, yes. So I understand she's relatively short. Uh, she has a fondness for sugar and horror movies. Yeah, that's um, exactly right. How else would you would describe her personality? And I know I know she has kind of a character arc during the first three books as well. Can you go into yeah. that a little bit? Oh, sure. So Hester is um, she is a misanthrope, uh, or I think she would call herself a misanthrope. She but she lives with her partner Morgan, um, and they are taking care of a young child whose name is Kate. And so they're sort of the core of the of the novels, along with their collection of friends. And I, I presented her as sort of the, someone who presents as a misanthrope. She's someone who um, talks a lot about wanting to be by be alone and and uh, and have her own time. She's really fighting for that time in the first novel because of Kate, who's the young child, has just come to stay with her. She's in that novel. She's thirty six years old, and she has she doesn't have kids by choice um so she's not thrilled that this kid has come to live with her um and but she's you know she's an adult she knows that she has to take care of the kid and so a lot of the no a lot of the novel sort of the uh, emotional part of the novel is about her coming to terms with this this change in her life and how it impacts her relationship with morgan um and then over those course of the three novels there is a you know, there's a character arc for all three of those, not so much Kate, Kate's little, but for Morgan and for um, Hester, who are the core couple of the novel, there's a character arc for, for each of them as they, as they deepen their relationship and they come closer together as a couple. Um, and one of the things that I always like to do with this book, Mor Hester and Morgan, they they sort of collect people, not in a, not in a creepy way, in a positive way. Um, <laughs> they uh, So as the novels progress, they they invite more and more people into their lives and, and their circle kind of grows. So one of the first people they invite into their lives is Angela White, who's a police detective. Um, and so she winds up showing up at sort of the middle of the first novel and then has, by the end of the third novel, has become a, a main character. Morgan's also a veterinarian, so they're constantly welcoming animals into their lives as well, um, both dogs and cats, but also like iguanas and, and that kind of thing. And Watcher, um, there were seven named animals in that novel there were six six dogs and one iguana uh, which might have been a few too many <laughs> well all the many of the characters had uh, uh pets including the uh, uh college family the family who owns the college they had a yep. couple of dogs as well and yes i remember the six foot long iguana as well and hester <laughs> saying no one's going to adopt a six foot long lizard <laughs> No, no. So she's often, she just, she understands. I mean, Hester, Hester will complain about things, but she also understands her lot in life. Morgan is a veterinarian, so he brings animals home and they find out they find a place for them in their, in their house. Mm -hmm. Hester also has a fondness for secrets. Oh yeah. She loves a secret. She loves to uncover someone else's secret, but she also likes to hold her own secrets. And so, um, Go on. No, I remember there's a, a particular incident in, uh, I think it's, uh, God, I'm, I'm confusing myself with the books, but I think it was definitely Watcher, where she went out with the dog and uh, came back and Morgan was serving her oatmeal and she decided not to say, oh, I stopped off at the donut shop and had a bacon and maple 
donut yeah is actually one of my favorites uh <laughs> we, we have a donut shop down the street and oh god those are fabulous oh yeah those are good and she takes a lot of sugar with her coffee as well she's almost yep. like a hummingbird in that way <laughs> six sugars for every coffee mm -hmm. now what kind of landscape does she move in she's obviously in Boston and who are the types of people she meets? What are the, what are the neighborhoods that she lives in and, and moves among? Oh, sure. So each novel, I always try to, she lives in a town called Somerville, which is right next to Boston. Um, it's like the Brooklyn of Boston, I would call it. And um, so, you know, oftentimes the action will take place there. But uh, one of the things I really love about New England is the, um, you can go from urban to rural very quickly. Um, you can go from the the sea to the mountains very quickly. Um, the the weather is always changing. You have different seasons here, so I always try and with each novel, I try to explore a different part of New England or a different part of Boston. Um, so the first novel takes place in in Somerville. A lot of it takes place on Beacon Hill, which is kind of a Tony part of Boston. It's a very historical uh, Tony part of Boston. And then a lot of the novel takes place in the Lakes District of uh, of uh, New Hampshire, um, and that was that's nice because it's actually easy, pretty easy to get to from Boston. It takes about an hour and a half to get there, uh, but it's like so different from Boston. It's very very rural. That that novel takes place. Little Comfort takes place in the winter, um, so it's. Um, you know, it was easy to get put Hester in some jeopardy to to create danger there to to isolate her, um, and um, and then it was nice to contrast it with the with the with the more urban setting with the both the um, Beacon Hill setting and the Somerville setting. With my second novel, I really wanted to explore a different part of New England, so we went up to Maine, um, and we went to an island off the coast of Maine that I based on a real life island. The real life island is con called Monhegan Island. It's eight miles off the coast of Booth Bay Harbor, and it's an old artist colony. It's not an artist colony anymore, but it used to be an artist colony. Now it's like a summer resort. It's really fun. It's only, I think it's like two, two square miles or maybe four square miles, maybe two by two. And um, one of the fun, there's no police force there um, and there are no cars. So you, uh, you get everywhere by, taking things in wheelbarrows. Um, so it's very isolated. I went out to do some research there. And one of the things that really fascinated me about it was you don't feel this until you're actually there. But when you're on an island and the ferry leaves, like if you don't have it, you don't have it. Um, like, so there, there's like a little general store there that has a few things, but if you didn't bring it in, you don't have it. So you're really, really dependent on that, the idea of that ferry coming. So I really wanted to explore what it was like to be in an isolated community like that, but also to be so reliant on transportation like that. I can uh, see and then on the third, oh, go on. No, no, I could see that would be a rare feeling because anywhere we are in this country, if you need something, there's a store nearby. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, and you don't know that you don't. All of a sudden, the ferry leaves, and you're like, "Oh God, I forgot my, you know, whatever. I forgot my Twinkies, you know, and um, you, they're not available. Believe it or not." <laughs> Another f uh, thing about your books uh, that I've noted is that you like to change point of view. That you have like several different characters that you swap among. And there was at least four in uh, Watcher. Yeah, that you have. And of course, the secrets we share, of course, they have they have multiple points of view as well. Is that an intentional on in, on your part? Or is that just something called up by the by the story that you wanted to write? 
Uh, with the Hester Theories based series, I always, I like, I feel like that's part of part of what the series is. So it's like, what what I like to do is um, tell the story from many different points of view, um, and so that so that the the slowly the pieces of the puzzle sort of form. By the end of the novel, um, every, the only person who, like I always say, the reader is the is the fifth or the sixth narrator or whatever, because by the end of the novel, everyone doesn't know everyone else's secrets. Only the reader knows everyone else's secrets, if I've done my job right. Uh, even Hester, our, our intrepid investigator, she's not necessarily going to know all of the answers at the end of the novel, though, though she does pull most of them together. Um, and that's part of the, that's like part of the tension of the novel, right? Because we all know things that other people don't know. And like as a reader, it's kind of exciting to get into people's head and, and explore some of those things. Um, with this, so I, with each of the Hester Thursby novels, I usually did four um, narrators. One of them has five narrators. With the secrets we share, I went crazy and did six narrators, um, and that was that was a that was a fun balancing act, I have to say. The novel I'm working on right now has seven narrators, and then actually that's the one I'm finishing up right now. And then the next one I'm working on is just going to have a single uh, first first person narrator, which isn't which will be interesting for me. There are a number of, uh, it's very common, especially in cozy mysteries, to have a single person narrator. Um, so I can appreciate the, the how different this felt to me to be jumping from one person to another. And it's and it's all very clear, you know, I mean, in um, Watch Me, you have the chapter headings with the person's name. So, you know, oh, this is Angela. OK, this is Hester. This is somebody else as well. Um, who do you consider your ideal reader for these books? Oh, I would say anyone who likes, a, um, you know, they, they have elements of traditional mysteries. Um, they, they're definitely, they have like a rough edge to them. So, I mean, they're not, they're, but they're not like overtly violent or anything. But if you like something with, with an edge to it, you like something with uh, good character development, I do, I do think the characters are really deep. Um, and you like a complex mystery. Um, so, again, these are, you are a participant in these novels, so you're you're putting you're helping to put these pieces together, and uh, and and creating a whole at the end of the reading experience. Mm -hmm. I noticed that you you said in previous interviews your first book was inspired by a true crime case, uh, the case of Clark Rockefeller. Is this something that you find yourself inspired by to do for your other books as well? Sort of, um, not 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 so much. The one I'm working on right now. Sometimes I'll read about something in the news, and I don't even want to say what the the thing that inspired this current novel because it's like uh, I don't want to like pile on to someone who who's been humiliated already in in, in the world. Um, and so I read about something that sort of inspired me to write this novel, but then I changed it enough so no one's ever going to see the original. No one will ever see what inspired me in the first place. And like the person who did it has already, like we don't need to pile on. So, um, but yeah, you know, you'll see little ideas here and there and you'll see, oh, what can I do with that? Um, and and kind of go from there. I find that's what is fascinating to me because I wouldn't say I'm a true crime buff in a way, although I, I find very, there are certain books that I find very fascinating and a homicide freezes in time everything that's going on around that person it's mm -hmm. it's not just the time they you have the location you have the events you have what that person did throughout that day and it's almost like you get a glimpse of how somebody else lives 
And I guess that's what I find also fascinating about, about mystery novels as well, is of course you do get that same kind of feeling that you're participating in someone else's life. Mm -hmm. Is there any kind, do you tend to draw on your imagination or are there people that you know, or have you seen things that you end up putting in your books? Where, where do you find the wellspring of your inspiration? Oh, um, you know, I try never to base anyone on anyone. I, you know, I try my best not to base anyone on anyone, but I will take like little snippets of things that people do. A good example is in Watch Her, Hester and Morgan are putting together a jigsaw puzzle together. And they have this ongoing debate about how you put the jigsaw puzzle together. Um, I, I, it's been a while since I wrote that book. I think it's Morgan who he doesn't like to look at the picture on the on the box. That's he likes to do it just by putting the pieces together, and that drives Hester crazy. And uh, so, like that, I totally pulled from someone because I have a friend who does puzzles like that, and I'm like, what? It drives me crazy too. Um, and I did alert him that I was doing that. I didn't ask for permission, but I did alert him. Um, and uh, so I'll pull little things like that just to add some texture to, to folks and stuff like that. I mean, I always say like all characters come from the author, right? So even the really bad ones, they, they come from the author ultimately. So like Hester in part is based on me, Morgan in part is based on me, but all of the murderers are in part based on me as well. <laughs> It's unusual to hear an author actually confess to that. <laughs> um, well, let's get into the secrets we share a little bit, uh, because this involves a crime. Of, it starts off about a crime that takes place back in 1995. I have to get the dates right. And the impact of that crime seems to follow these characters, these sisters through. Um can you tell us a little bit more about it? Sure. Yeah, so this story is about two sisters. One is named Natalie and the other is named Glenn, like Glenn Close. And um, they are, it takes place in the current day, but the, um, the, the inciting incident happens in 1995 when, when they are witnesses to a brutal killing in their small neighborhood. Um, and each of them thinks that they believe they know what happened during that killing but neither of them kind of shares what they believe happened uh, during that killing. And that knowledge, they sort of carry that forward uh, into their lives and it informs the way that they, they uh, interact with the world. So Natalie is a police officer. That's the connection to Angela White. Uh, Natalie is a, is a police detective. She's a homicide detective. Um, and she's very buttoned up. Um, she doesn't have a lot of friends. She doesn't have, uh, she doesn't have a romantic life. Um, she drinks too much. Um, and she's really just close with her sister, Glenn. Um, Glenn, on the other hand, is very gregarious, very outgoing. She uh, has been very successful in her career. Uh, she's just... Uh, she, she sort of gave up a career in consulting and decided to go into, uh, to create a baking blog. And she's right on the verge of big success, which is a really nice, which is a really, a really fun place to explore in uh, fiction writing. This idea of being on the, on the edge of something and whether or not you're able to go over the edge or if you get pulled back is really interesting. So Natalie, uh, sorry, Glenn is about to release her first cookbook. It's getting a lot of buzz. It's getting a lot of press. Um, and the the events of this story happen just as that is about to happen. Uh, you know, I love to exp I love to look at the way media works in in this day and age. How easy it is to to lose an opportunity. Um, 
depending on on how something is perceived out in the world. And so that's that's sort of what I what I look at here. But the events of the story, um, the events of of the current day story. There's a murder in the current day story. Eventually, those everything ties together to be related to the story that happened in the past. Yeah, it does. Yeah, without trying to give away too much, this is where we have to be careful about <laughs> revealing too much. You know, there, there's a body discovered in a warehouse, and it turns out that um, I believe it's it's Natalie. Well, Natalie and Glenn both under think they know who it is, and it turns out to be something else. Uh, there's, I, I actually made this note. I hope you don't think that I'm. I I I know that thrillers have certain tropes, but it was that I had to stop and note that after 38 pages, we've already had two murders, child abuse, spousal abuse, embezzlement, one affair, and a plotted murder. And I thought. Wow. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, when I, I signed the contract for this book on like March 1st, 2020, do you remember where you were at in March of 2020? Yep. And I was like, I'm just going to have as much fun as I possibly can with this novel. I'm going to throw everything at the wall. And, um, and, and I did have fun. So I, one of my goals was that there was supposed to be a twist in every chapter. I didn't quite get there, but, um, but I wanted there to be like, I wanted the, the reader to really feel like they were on a fun fun roller coaster ride because that's what I needed when I was writing this as well. Well that that's good. I'm glad you took it that way because it's, I was just like I'm not used to reading many thrillers. I'm more of a mystery side myself. So thrillers, yeah. particularly contemporary thrillers, I'm not that much into. So when I'm struck by something like that, I just had to go, I gotta write this down. <laughs> <laughs> I also appreciate that this is really a con a contemporary, especially in the way that Glenn is about to have her first cookbook published, but she didn't make it through the traditional way. She was a blogger. She was an influencer. She has, you know, you mentioned YouTube videos as well, which is perfectly in line with my experiences online as well. That's how people start to come up in this day and age. They don't do a cooking show on the mm -hmm. local network anymore. You know, they don't get discovered by Martha Stewart. It's an entirely different path to uh, fame and mm -hmm. what that does to you as well. I really well, I was not, I was, you know, I got that. I was watching some show on the, on the uh, food channel and they mentioned, it was like some competition. Everyone was discovered on, on um, Instagram. They were just discovered through there and they were like, I don't know, like cook, they had like some tag. I can't remember like cookie blogger or something like that. And um, I was like, oh, that's so interesting. And then, so I just wove that into the, I mean, that's like where, you, that's one of those details that you find where you like weave it into the story to make, make it feel authentic. Yeah. Uh, but it is, that's how, that's how they find those people for those, for those TV shows. And so I just wanted to, I wanted to trace how someone would find a piece of fame. I mean, Glenn is by no far, no, by no means like super famous, but she has a piece of fame and she has the potential of becoming more famous. Yeah. Um, and that's a really, that's, you know, that's an interesting place to be in life. Well, especially because her, uh, her, she was actually, this is her second go around because the murder that opens the book drew a lot of media attention to them as well. And she's having to worry about, how is this going to affect her this time around? Yeah. And, and then of course, you know, everything goes to heck in a handbasket and she doesn't have to worry about, about yeah. that anymore. Well, that was fun to look at too, because in 1995, your fame was not on your permanent record, right? Like we all now have a permanent record. So it's really interesting to look at. So they have like something really terrible happened in 1995 and it's think terrible things that happened in 1995 disappear in the wind, yeah. but terrible things that happen today, like, it's harder to escape that. So I, I 
wanted to look at that as well. I, yes, it's one of those cases where I see things happening now online, and I think, thank God, I didn't have instant cameras back in my day. Yeah. I would hate to have anything that's happened to me in college or as a young adult, you know, f literally follow you around for the rest of your life. Um, so you now you're working on another novel. How far are you in on that one? Oh, my gosh. You know, it's so funny. I am finished. I just finished a novel. I'm just finishing up the edits on the novel. It doesn't have a title yet. I wish it did. I could tell you the title if it did. Um, but it is another standalone. It takes place on it takes place in Massachusetts on the south coast of Massachusetts, which is like people have probably heard of New Bedford or Fall River. Fall River is where. Um, oh, what the hell is her name? Um, oh, uh, Lizzie Borden. Lizzie Borden lived, yes. Uh, anyway, the south coast of Boston is like the less famous version of the Cape. It's very beautiful there, but it's also very undiscovered. And so it takes place in a small town. It's about six friends who are coming together for a birthday party. One of them is a psychiatrist, and it turns out that he is the um, he is the he is offering therapy to a couple of people at the um, at the party unbeknownst to everyone else. And he also likes to spy on his clients. And so um, it is about the aftermath of, it's about secrets. It's about the secrets that we keep from each other. It's about, it's about, having, uh, it's about having power in a small community, the way a psychiatrist has, a, has power in a small community, the way a police chief has, has power in a small community, the way a minister has, has power in a small community, and how all of these people come together and um, uh, share their secrets. That sounds fascinating. Is there a published publication date? for that yeah it's coming it's not coming out till not next year it's coming out in uh february of 20 24 uh, uh, yeah all right all right so we'll have to that's we'll why there's plenty of time to come up with a title <laughs> <laughs> well now i also understand and and uh, i also understand because you have your mfa um as well and you're also you're also teaching an online mfa program in genre writing is that correct Yep, I teach at Emerson College here in Boston. Um, they have a they have a, a traditional uh, on the ground MFA program, and then they have a, a MFA program for genre fiction, which is uh, taught online. Have you learned? Have you used anything you learned from your various experiences in the MFA program, or also in publishing? Because you spent twenty years. Have you found any of that of use either in your writing or getting your getting the word out about your books? Oh, well, I mean, it, it is, I find so much in, I mean, I learn something every time I teach a, a course for that program. I learn something from the students. I learn how to, um, I learn how to refine some of the things that I do. Um, I, one example I think would be, I mean, I write in a standard three act structure, beginning, middle and end. Um, but it, by teaching about plot points uh, and how plot points work in a story, and uh, engaging with students on that, it's made the, it's made that structure made me understand that structure so much better, and it's made me able to engage in that structure so much better. This novel that I was just telling you about is one hundred not one hundred percent, but the structure of the novel is so essential. Um, and I don't know if I could have done it uh, as effectively as I feel like I have. Um, the readers will have to judge, but as effectively as I feel like I have, if I hadn't taught that course, this novel is told from, I mentioned from seven points of view, six major points of view, but it's told in a Rashomon. So each section, each one sixth of the novel is told from 
one point of view and we look at the same story over and over again. We, we look at it recursively so that we're learning about different things and different, uh, different perspectives on the same party as, as the story progresses. Mm-hmm. And I definitely could not have done that without having taught these classes. Yeah, I could see you had to solidify what you think you know in your head in a concrete fashion that other people can understand. And once they understand, you go, oh, that's what I meant. Yeah, I understand it now, too. Thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, I especially appreciate you had some great writing advice, and I know I didn't want to get into it too much, but I, I especially appreciate the idea, and I'll, I'll quote you uh, from an interview you gave uh, with your university, um, um, that you don't want to follow, you don't want absolute writing rules. What I encourage students to do is to take that absolute verb, always never and replace it with consider so consider don't using a prologue consider writing in the third person mm-hmm. because it's been my experience there's always there's always alternatives people can do write successfully in a way that breaks that particular rule oh sure you know people will give advice all the time and like who doesn't want to give people advice so um but i and oftentimes you should listen or not should listen you can listen you know like uh you know if you get advice to like, don't ever use prologues. Like, think about about it. Do I really? Does this novel really need a prologue? Is it stronger because of this prologue? And the answer might be yes. And if it is yes, just use the use the prologue. Um, but think about whether you can incorporate that prologue into the main narrative. Yeah, and the word consider can apply to so many things. Any oh, kind God. of rules of life that you think are solid rules, if you think consider give you that opening to kind of change your mind. Absolutely. And I guess that's also the way, like your characters, how they have to deal with trauma in their lives. They have to consider finding a way of moving beyond it or embracing it. Or I guess in some, in I guess most of Hester's case, uh, continuing to keep it clamped down. <laughs> she doesn't, she, she, she keeps it clamped down and then she stops keeping it clamped down. That's, that's one of the, the themes of Watcher, which is the third book of that, that series. Yeah. The, the two of the, those two characters really, um, move to a different place in their relationship. That's very true. I can see by the clock on Zoom that we'll have to wind this up, um, which is a shame because I'd love to talk to you some more. Um, where can people learn more about you? Oh, you can just go to my website, uh, edwin-hill.com, um, or just search on my name, Edwin Hill. I, I think I come up relatively quickly. Mm-hmm. That is you- true. That is true. And I especially recommend uh, you have a section where you have all your previous interviews and all your previous podcast appearances. Definitely take a look at those. They're fascinating. Oh, thank you. Yes. And on behalf of Mechanicsburg Mystery Presents, I want to thank you very much for showing up today. And to everyone out there in TV land, YouTube land, video land, I'm not sure. I only hope that the best book is the one you're reading right now. Thank you very much. Thanks, Bill.